The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Brian D. Estelle. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Okay, let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to meditate on your excellencies this morning. Uh, We ask that our thoughts would uh, flee away from distractions and that you would grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth, especially your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will continue our studies in Deuteronomy, and I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 32. We'll not read the whole of that chapter. You'll probably remember that this is most the famous song of Moses that comes there at roughly the end of Deuteronomy. And I'd like to read uh, verses 1 through 5 and then skip up to verses 18 and following. This is God's word. Give careful attention to it. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then moving up to verses 18 and following, I'll just read a couple verses. You were mindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Mi amar le mi matai, who said unto whom and when? This is a standard question for Israeli children on Bible tests and a common lead into jokes. More importantly, for our purposes this morning, it's a segue into the art and science of illusion hunting. Last time I did chapel, about a year ago, I took up John 15 because we were in John then with its vine imagery, and I maintained that it was pointing to the vineyard songs of Isaiah 5 and 27. In other words, the references were not to a vineyard or vine or grapes roundabout our Lord as he was speaking, but what would have been evoked in the mind of the original hearers was actually uh, the biblical metaphor of the vineyard songs of Isaiah. It's interesting, according to the latest theorists on metaphor and in cognitive linguistics and psychologists, besides, uh, by the way, this is not a sermon. It's, uh, you know, not even meant to be a lecture. This is chapel devotions, and so don't go out and imitate this in your church, all right? Because I'm merely doing this for your edification and a few other reasons. Uh, But... Uh, According to the latest theorists on metaphor among cognitive linguists and psychologists, how the readers 
hearer's mind is being semantically primed by Jesus' metaphor activation in John 15 was what was argued, and I put it that he was invoking the vineyard songs. And my thesis at that time a year ago was that all the rights and privileges and responsibilities were being transferred from corporate Israel to uh, Christ. Um, I'm going to continue on that theme with these verses that I read from Deuteronomy 32, because if you noticed early on in Deuteronomy 32, the focus was on disobedient children, and also in the latter verses, the focus was also on disobedient children. I'm doing this uh, for a couple reasons. From one side of the perspective, this kind of corporate typology of Israel applying to Christ is under attack uh, these days, being gainsaid as illegitimate in some circles, even heterodox in other circles. On the other side of the spectrum are those writers that so emphasize the corporate Israel Christ typology, or even the Adam corporate Israel Christ typology, that it actually relativizes the individualizing tendencies in federal theology, namely that God is merely about saving a people, and not about saving individuals. Here I have in mind especially, you'll recognize N.T. Wright, among other new perspective on Paul proponents, as opposed to the old perspective. But my thesis this morning is that these verses in chapter 32, verses 1 to 5, which was huge in Second Temple Judaism, and chapter 32, 18 to 20, are actually setting forth a prospective, that is, forward-looking typological reference, literary typology, that is. Not divine designation type anti-type, but literary typology for the obligations of corporate Israel, in this case, unfulfilled. As a son of God, they were supposed to fulfill these obligations, but they failed to. And Christ now, as the true probation keeper, has come in order to fill all those obligations which corporate Israel failed to fulfill. I do not have the time nor the motivation to go into exhaustive detail on exegeting this this morning. My goal is merely to set before you some little bit more evidence to add to your repertoire of evidence already Uh, to suggest that you keep your mind open with regards to the thesis that indeed corporate Israel is set out as setting up a uh, literary typology for Christ to fulfill. These passages that I read address the corporate disobedience of Israel as children. Now I'd like to fast forward and go to Jesus' baptism scene. And I'd like to do that by looking at Matthew in particular. It may be helpful to you. It's familiar, and I'm really going to just concentrate on one part of this. Um, But if you have your Bibles, you might open up there to uh, Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Now, Jesus' baptism has perplexed New Testament scholars for years. However, uh, what comes from the analysis that follows is that I think Deuteronomy 32 is at least in part a factor in the background of Matthew's approbation formula. In other words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, the beloved in whom I am well pleased, literally. Uh, Brandon Crow has argued recently, in contrast to the disobedient nation of Israel, the baptism of Jesus marks out Jesus as the obedient son. 
Recent research has set forth at least six reasons for understanding Deuteronomy 32, the very passages that we read, to be in the background of the approbation formula, the approval formula, that is given to our Lord as he is baptized coming out of heaven. It reads in Greek, Hutas estin, ha quias, ha agapetas en ho edaxa. This is my son, the beloved one, or the beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. It's interesting that udakeo plus the preposition in, since we have a lot of Greek speakers or at least readers in the crowd, almost always refers to the nation Israel. But I'll list off for you the six reasons that Professor Crow gives for understanding Deuteronomy 32 uh, in the background, and then I'll add some further corroboratory evidence to his thesis, and then we'll come back and hopefully tie it together. Um, Instead of merely going to Psalm 2, or even Isaiah 42, for the illusion in our archaeology of illusion hunting, um, as the background for this, I think that is plausible for the other Gospels, at least uh, for Luke and Mark. I don't think that it's as convincing as the evidence that Professor Crow has set here that Deuteronomy 32 is at least in the background. And these are for the following reasons. You'll notice, especially if you're looking at your Greek Bible, uh, that the quotation in Matthew is different than the quotation in Mark or Luke. This is my son, as opposed to you are uh, my son, uh, in whom I am well pleased, as opposed to in you I am well pleased. Here's the six lines of evidence. We don't have time to go into them in detail, but I'll outline for you uh, them for you, and if you want to follow up, you can check out this book, which is on reserve for prophets class, although it might be a little protected at this time by certain individuals who have a paper due. First of all, both Deuteronomy at this point and Matthew 3 have corporate Israel in mind, especially with its focus on sonship. Indeed, as Crow has shown the opening chapters of this book, Matthew has a clear penchant for correlating the sonship of Israel Jesus, uh, and the sonship of Jesus. He's more interested in corporate national imagery uh, of Israel and how Jesus fulfills that than other Gospels are with their emphasis on kingly and Davidic fulfillment. This, of course, all has reference to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 through 23, in which you'll remember that's the first passage in the Hebrew Bible where Israel is called God's son. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Secondly, interpretive traditions dealing with Deuteronomy 32 have Israel as beloved sons in view. This is especially the view in the Targums and some other interpretive traditions I don't have time to go into right now. Three, Matthew clearly has in view other relevant portions of Deuteronomy 32 in view in his gospel, especially verses 5 and verse 20. So, for example, in Matthew 17, 17, you remember, uh, our Lord says, and I quote, O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I think the UBS is correct in seeing allusion to Deuteronomy 32 at that point, the very verses that we read. Four, 
Deuteronomy 32 was a very widely known text in the ancient world at this time. It was referenced often, very often. Pick up uh, N.T. Wright's new 1,500-page tome, look in the index and see how many times he refers to Deuteronomy 30 and Deuteronomy 32. Fifth, thematically, Crow argues that Deuteronomy 32.5 and 20 chastises Israel for being disobedient sons. The point of Matthew is, by way of contrast, it sets up Christ as being the obedient son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Sixth, the descent of the Spirit in Matthew 3 may reveal knowledge of similar imagery in Deuteronomy 32.11. You will remember that passage, which gets a lot of sunshine and hay around here. Quote, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions. So the Lord alone guided him, that is Israel. No foreign god was with him. These verses conspicuously set forth Israel's obligation as a son to fulfill all righteousness. The son of God, as Israel, was to obey. Now it's true, as I mentioned earlier, that Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 have often been the illusion connections that have been made here. I think the likelihood of Isaiah 42 is possible. Even if it is Isaiah 42 conflated uh, with Deuteronomy 32 that was in the writer's mind. Nevertheless, the Septuagint of Isaiah 42 says, um, My chosen one, referring to Israel, ha eklektas mu, which is always used as a corporate designation. So that just further bolsters the point. I would like to add to Crow's evidence two other lines of evidence, one from the book of Mark, one should look at the Gospel of Mark, whom almost all agree is the source for Matthew, uh, namely the prologue where Mark opens with Jesus' baptism in the following way. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It is my contention that we have yet another reason for the possibility of Deuteronomy 32 in the background for the Matthew uh, quote. Uh, in this Section in Mark, the descent through the rent heavens of the Spirit coming on Jesus is entirely keeping with the great lament of the book of Isaiah. Jesus is God's answer to that cry. He has come in strength to announce to the effect that Israel's long-awaited new exodus, the agent of that new exodus, has come, and the heavens have been rent open, Isaiah 63, in order to declare that that is the case. Jesus is the one that reverses the judgment on Israel. It is well known that there is a suppression in Mark's gospel with regards to Jesus' identity of the divine sonship. Some call it the messianic secret. However, at this point, as one scholar says, and I quote, by the references to Isaiah 63 in Mark 1, 9 to 11, the baptism seen there, Mark's community is led in on the vital secret that in Jesus' baptism, the eschatological theophany foretold in the Old Testament has occurred. The approbation from heaven announces to Mark's auditors, Jesus is the Son. Finally, I will add a bit of corroboratory evidence uh, that also uh, Crow has set forth, and that's the temptation narrative. Where does the temptation narrative appear in Matthew? immediately following the baptismal narrative in Matthew, namely in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
And not only Hosea, but especially the book of Deuteronomy reverberates very loudly in Matthew's gospel at this point. Matthew has a much more expanded narrative on the temptation in the wilderness than Mark does. And although this section could be considered the climax of the first four chapters of uh, Matthew, with Crow, I agree that Matthew 3.15 is absolutely essential for understanding the first four chapters, indeed, all of Matthew. Why did Jesus come? Plerosai pasan de In order to fulfill all righteousness. The temptation narrative is the most significant location in Matthew where the sonship of Jesus vis-a-vis the sonship of Israel, corporate Israel, comes to the fore. As Allison notes, quote, if in Matthew 2 the evangelist glossed the traditional Moses typology with an Israel typology, in Matthew 4, that is the temptation narrative, just the opposite occurred. The evangelist overlaid the existing Israel typology with specifically mosaic motifs. This makes an unmistakable linkage to the Exodus typology here. What's immediately obvious uh, from this temptation passage is, even on a superficial read, the resemblance of Jesus' wilderness temptations with those of Israel. The conclusion of all this evidence is clearly stated by Smith, and I quote, All the failings of Israel in the original Exodus experience are rejected and overcome by the representative of new Israel in his wilderness testing. Close quote. The above lines of evidence, mostly from Brandon Crow, in addition to a little bit of corroboratory evidence that I have given, show that the patterns in place in the Hebrew Bible have provided the typological grid that Christ has fulfilled. He gives a perfect merit, a righteousness that Israel as the Son of God, uh, corporate Israel as the Son of God, failed to exhibit, but Christ as the true Son of God has now fulfilled. Do you think, laddies and lassies, that they are going to take away a properly biblically balanced corporate typology from the children without a skirmish? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. We praise you for the tapestry of your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would uh, help us to always set it forth with the utmost clarity. Father, help us to remain biblically balanced when on the one side uh, we hear those that would so emphasize a corporate typology that it basically marginalizes individual salvation and all the truths of Christian liberty, which are ours as individuals, as we have to stand alone before the judge on his throne at the final day. But Lord, we pray that we would not swing in the other direction and that we would merely corral the wagons out of fear of sounding like those who are aberrant in their teaching and that we would, oh Lord, uh, be so conservative that we would indeed marginalize the clear teaching of your word. Uh, Father, uh, work courage in these men and women and uh, in each of us professors, we do pray. So they may always uh, stand firm, O Lord, draw a line in the sand if necessary to protect and guard your truth. For you give these things, O Lord, for edification. You indeed, as the great penalty payer, have paid the sins, not only of individuals, but also, Lord, corporately of a body, Israel, which failed to fulfill all that it was commanded to do. Moreover, O Lord, you are the great probation keeper not only fulfilling all righteousness, the Mosaic law, but also, Lord, fulfilling all righteousness that Adam failed to uh, achieve 
and cast the entire human race into a condition of sin and misery. O Lord, where else would we turn but to Christ, our great probation keeper and our great penalty payer? We thank you for his work. It is perfect. It is perfectly meritorious. We give you all praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.